So a wedding couple called me up recently and asked me if they could include the Apache wedding prayer in their wedding ceremony. They had heard the prayer recited at a friend's wedding and they really liked it and they wanted to know if I felt comfortable reading it under the chuppah. Have any of you heard the prayer before at another wedding? Maybe. It goes, now you will feel no storms for each of you will be sheltered to the other. Now you will feel no cold for each of you will be warmth to the other. Now there is no loneliness for each of you is companion to the other. Does that sound familiar? Oh good, I'm seeing a couple of like, a couple of nods. So I have to admit, I was a little caught off guard by the request. I didn't want to be the rabbi who just rejected a non-Jewish prayer because it's not Jewish. But at the same time, I didn't really know what the prayer was about. I'd actually heard it at two secular weddings of my friends, but I never really thought about it. And even though I think of myself as a progressive, kind of open rabbi, I also think that I have some integrity, that I have moments. So I did what most rabbis do, when they don't know the answer and need to buy time, I told them that I needed to give it some deep thought and I would get back to them. And I started to do a little research. I was kind of fascinated. What's the deal with this Apache wedding prayer? And I came across a book called One Perfect Day, The Selling of the American Wedding by Rebecca Mead, who's a staff writer for The New Yorker. And Mead had the exact same experience. She was trying to plan her own wedding, and she Googled wedding blessings, literally, and this is the first prayer that came up on website after website about how to plan your wedding ceremony. So she decided to investigate. She spoke to historians, she went to libraries, she called up different tribes and different Native American chiefs, and she finally, after six months, discovered the real origins of the prayer a 1950s Western. <laughs> the movie Broken Arrow with Jimmy Stewart. Have any of you seen it? Oh, look at that, excellent, we have one taker, right? So Jimmy Stewart starred in the 1950s Western Broken Arrow, and it contains apparently a very well-known wedding scene in which this prayer, written for the movie, is recited. So the prayer that thousands of American couples have chosen to read at their weddings every year is not a Native American gem preserved over the generations, but the creative invention of a very talented Hollywood screenwriter who was probably Jewish. <laughs> Viewers saw it in the movie, it seemed inspiring, they liked it, and it became traditional. And traditional, maybe that is what bothered me so much about this discovery. Part of the power of this prayer seems to be the idea that it originated with the indigenous people of our land. Ah, it's Native American. But it's not real. That's what bugged me, it's not real. It's only a reflection of Hollywood's depiction of that culture. So that brings us, inevitably, to our Torah portion. Just stay with me, Kichisa, in the middle of Exodus. Because the Israelites also yearned for tradition as they wandered in the desert, following a God that had no form. In this week's Torah portion, Moses leaves the people to go up to Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights to receive the Ten Commandments. And while he's gone, the Israelites, they kind of get impatient. They get a little insecure. 
they're like, where did he go? When is he coming back? Why isn't he here? Where are we? We're not in Egypt anymore. It's hot. Whatever they were feeling, they finally turn to Aaron, Moses' brother, and with his guidance, they build, out of gold, a golden calf. Right? They build an idol, they build a statue in the image of a calf, and they begin to worship it, dancing and praying around it and offering it sacrifices like it was Adonai, our God. We learn this story of the golden calf as kids or as adults as one of the great sins of the Israelites. But what is the sin, really? Right? What is so wrong with their idolatry? What's wrong with them building a golden calf and worshiping it? We often use symbols to help us connect to the divine. We sometimes need the concrete, things that we can feel and see to be able to pray as a community. But the Midrash teaches that the Israelites didn't just see the calf as a symbol. They saw it as a god of gold, a molten image with actual real power. And in their impatience, the Israelites settled for a convenient superficial medium for their spirituality. And as a result, they almost missed out on receiving the divine moral truths of the Ten Commandments and ultimately Torah. So we have these two stories, the Apache wedding prayer on the one hand and the golden calf from this week's Torah portion on the other. And I think the connection between them is an issue of authenticity. What feels real? that deeper sense that we get in our kishkas, and in our insides, that there's a there there, right? That something is authentic, that there's a there there. Something that's just inside of us that we feel, something that resonates, that echoes, that literally our stomach does a little bit of a, like a little bit of a dance. Mead, the same journalist who discovered the truth about the Apache prayer, describes it as traditionalesque. I love that, as traditionalesque. She writes, it's a pleasing melange of apparently old-fashioned, certainly nostalgic, inter intermittently ethnically authentic practices that may have little relevance to the past or future and are really only illustrative of the present in which they emerge. It's a pretty intense, it's a pretty intense quotation. One more time, right? It's old-fashioned, certainly nostalgic, intermittently ethnically authentic, has little relevance to the past or future, and is only really about the present in which it emerges. The Israelites were attracted to the traditionalesque. The calf, which was a common representation of gods in the ancient Near East, seemed like a comforting way to worship in the moment. We also often end up settling for the traditionalesque, because we don't feel connected to, or we don't realize the power of Jewish tradition. Now I have to pause here for a minute because when my sister read this sermon last night, the first thing she said to me was that I was making this poor wedding couple sound like evil idolaters. <laughs> so I wanna make it really clear, don't walk out of here tonight and go down to the Oneg and think that I've drawn the connection between this lovely couple that happened to hear a prayer that they liked and those who worshiped the golden calf in the desert in the story of Exodus. That is not my intention. Everyone should be able to design a wedding that speaks to them. And Reform Judaism certainly has evolved and borrowed from multiple cultures. 
But the difference is that it always exists within the framework of Judaism. It is rooted in the core substance of shared beliefs, a part of a conversation between us and our 2,000-year-old history that we are constantly relating to. When I witness a couple sign a ketubah, a Jewish wedding contract, and commit in writing to honor and support and care for each other in the tradition of Jewish men and women who made those same vows. When I stand under a chuppah, a wedding canopy, with a couple and have them repeat the line to their beloved, Hara'at mekudeshet li betaba'atzo kedat Moshe Yisrael, with this ring, behold, you are made holy to me according to the tradition of Moses and Israel. I'm inspired by their love, but more than that, I'm inspired by the beauty of Jewish ritual. We find ourselves connected to not only a rich past, but a hopeful future. Standing not only with the millions of couples from our history that have been married in the past, but the millions of couples who have not yet been born, who will celebrate together in the future, in the same spirit and with many of the same language and rituals that we have today. Because ultimately, the comparison of these two stories is not about weddings, although it is Valentine's Day, and that's kind of inadvertently become our theme. But even if you are totally single and looking for your Besheret, looking for your destined one tonight, the sermon is not about weddings. It's about more than that. It's about meaningful moments in our lives. It's about the rituals that mark before our community how we have changed and how we continue to change. This sermon is about why we should choose Jewish tradition, because it's authentic, because we do experience a deeper meaning, and because in a world where it's easy to opt for the traditionalesque, to Google a wedding blessing and say, oh, that sounds nice, I wonder where that's from, that there's a difference, that it's worth embracing the tradition and the traditional of Judaism. Shabbat Shalom. With that, for some last moments of tradition, we are going to rise for the Aleinu, which is on page 282. Marsha always remembers. 282 as we transition into the concluding prayers of our service. If you haven't already, please rise. Shemo, Shemo, Shemo.
We stay standing on page 294 for Kadisha Tom for the Mourner's Kaddish. And as I am thinking about Jewish wedding rituals, I think of the Shavar Brachot, of the seven blessings that you say under the chuppah, under the Jewish wedding canopy. And there's a tradition that your friends and your family come uh, and celebrate with you for the nights after your wedding and sing the Shavar Brachot to you every night. And one of the traditions is that you always have to have someone who didn't come to your wedding come and celebrate with you and say the Shavar Brachot. And Rabbi Bauer taught me that one of the reasons is it's supposed to teach you how to have community and how to continue to build community as a couple so that there's always those people who you didn't know from college or you didn't know from San Francisco who you're just meeting, maybe a neighbor or a friend of a friend who wasn't on the guest list but comes and celebrates with you and welcomes you as a wedding couple. And one of the reasons is that so when you one day need someone to come to your home to sit shiva with you, mm. to help you mourn someone that you've lost, you already have a built-in communal system for accessing them so that they can support you wherever you are. And it's just one of those examples that we're always thinking of all the moments of the Jewish life cycle. That whether you just had a baby, or whether you're about to get married, or whether you've recently lost someone that you 